turn our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14. Mark, Gospel of Mark chapter 14, reading at verse 32. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's hear the Word of God. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell onto the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thanks be to God. Gethsemane. Of all the stops on the way to the cross, Gethsemane is the most disturbing and I think the most instructive. If you glance back to the previous paragraph, when they left the upper room, we saw they sang a hymn together. That hymn or those psalms that they sang were likely the Hallel Psalms, Psalms number 113 to 18 and 136. These were the psalms usually sung at Passover, celebrating Israel's release from bondage in Egypt, and among them celebrating the stone that the builders rejected that turns out to be the chief cornerstone. These psalms, of course, are Jesus' songs, sung beforehand by Jesus in anticipation of his coming. Jesus is the real David. He is the new David. And we sing the psalms in communion with Jesus himself. For St. Augustine, it's always Christ who is speaking in the psalms. Sometimes as the head, that is the head of the church, sometimes as the body, that is as us in our behalf. And now through uh, our union with Christ, it forms a single subject. The head and the body form Christ and the church. The whole Christ, as St. Augustine put it. And so Jesus sings with us and sings for himself in those psalms. Well, there was an old farmstead with an oil press for crushing olives named Gethsemane. 
Its location is still known to us today, though the olive trees there, though ancient, are likely the successors of the originals of Jesus' day. It was in this old farmstead area that Jesus told his disciples to sit here while I pray. It was here that Jesus experienced that final loneliness as the whole anguish of the human condition flowed over him. Here in this garden, we see the abyss of evil and sin that penetrated his righteous soul. John refers to Gethsemane as a garden, obviously pointing us back to the original garden in Eden, where paradise was and where paradise was lost as man fell into sin. Look back at verse 27. Jesus, speaking even to his own disciples, says these words, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That quotation comes from Zechariah, the prophet. He's spoken of a Messiah who would suffer death. This was Jesus the Messiah, the shepherd of Israel. The Lord's my shepherd. The Lord is Jesus. It is my shepherd who takes injustice upon himself. It is my shepherd who will bear the burden of my and our guilt. It is our shepherd who will allow himself to be struck down as he taught us. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now he goes apart to pray. He takes with him Peter, James, and John, as he had done at the Transfiguration. These three, who couldn't keep their eyes open, they couldn't keep their eyes open at the Transfiguration either, and had to be rebuked. And we read that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. His whole being was uh, in a turmoil. He even tells us, my soul was very sorrowful, even to death. And he tells them to wait and to watch. That warning that he gives to his disciples has relevance for us. He says to the disciples, if you don't, if you don't be, uh, be on the watch and pray, that you don't enter into temptation, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember, the flesh is weak. That's why I'm telling you, to be faithful in prayer, to keep your eyes open, to be watching all the time. Jesus is not excusing them, but he's telling them that a lack of vigilance and watchfulness opens us up individually and ecclesially to the work of the evil one. Not being watchful in prayer leaves us inured to the effects of the devil's evil works in deceit and abuse and violence, in injustice and cruelty, in murder. Jesus' own words come from Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? He who uttered those words now experiences in his human nature what that means. On the cross, too, Jesus will quote from the Psalms, in order to speak to his Father. 
It's Jesus who truly prays these psalms. He is the real subject of the book of Psalms. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes a short distance from his sleepy companions and that he falls down to the ground on his face. He wrote, he fell on his face and prayed. This is a prayer posture, one that you can use to fall on your face before God. I've done that myself from time to time in my life, to fall on my face before God with the, in the prostrate position of one who is entirely subordinate and in subjection to God. Jesus puts himself in this prayer posture of extreme submission to the will of God. Also the position of radical self-offering. He falls on his face before God. In the early church, when they were ordaining people, the ordinands would routinely fall on their face on the floor before being ordained as an action of absolute submission. In the Roman church, that still obtains. Luke tells us that at some point, he kneeled in prayer. There are three points of prayer, as you noticed as we read in the story, three points of prayer, three comings to investigate the sleeping disciples. On the first occasion, he's prostrate. Later on, he's kneeling. And perhaps in the last one, he's standing. Any of those postures of prayer are acceptable. And he at last reaches the content of his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. He uses the affectionate, thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now we need to take seriously what Jesus is facing here. Jesus is facing death. You and I will face death. Death is described as the last enemy by the Apostle Paul. God gave Jesus the same human nature as you and I have, that is, a human nature that shrinks from death. We avoid it. We don't typically walk into it or look for it. St. Chrysostom puts it like this, God has implanted in human nature a love for the life of this world. It's not bad not to want to leave this world because you were made, at this stage at least, for this world. His deity did not cancel out his humanity. Hilary of Poitiers puts it like this, though with God nothing is impossible, yet for human nature... It is impossible to ignore the fear of suffering. In human nature, it's impossible to ignore the fear of suffering. None of us wants to suffer. So we're overhearing the prayer of a man who's facing suffering and death. A prayer of infinite reverence and awe. A prayer that we're told in the book of Hebrews was answered. Hebrews chapter 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard 
because of his reverence. That strong crying, those tears were not rejected. That cry was heard in heaven. Those tears were wiped away by heaven. We're on holy ground here. As we kind of sneak up to that garden and we observe through the help of those apostles who were there what happened there, we find good and evil locked in mortal combat, struggling for eternal victory. Your fate and mine hang in the balance. Great drops of blood will fall from our Lord's body, betraying the deadly struggle that was going on within him. But this was no mere fear of death. He'd long ago, long ago resolved to go to Jerusalem to die. He even spelt out what kind of death he would die. Humanity, humanly speaking, it's natural to die, and so uh, as much as natural to die as it is to be born. But here Christ is facing more than human death. As the Holy One, he is faced with bearing the world's sin. The wages of sin is death. All of the sins of the world, from the sins of you and I, which we may regard as being minor, to the sins that are far bigger in our mind, the sins of abuse, of the dictator, of the murderer, the brutality of the rapist or of the mob, the violence of the bully, all felt, all experienced by the one whose nature was that of undamaged sensitivity, perfect guiltlessness, total innocence, and perfect love. Martin Luther puts it like this. Our hard, impure flesh can barely comprehend the agonizing sensitivity of a sinless nature brought into contact with hostile wickedness and hateful antagonism. We can't even begin to imagine what it would be for a sinless soul to carry sin and be punished for sin as Jesus will be on the cross. In other words, he faced a worse bitterness than the worst bitterness of death itself. And yet in his hour of need, when his human nature, he sought sympathy and support, he found none. He came and he found them sleeping, it says. He says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He says these words to them not to excuse their failure, but to point them to the danger they were in. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you don't pray, you're in danger. He must have thought of these words of Psalm 69. He had already sung them. David had recorded them. Thy rebuke has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to have pity on me, but there was no one. Neither found I any to comfort me. 
At the transfiguration, Jesus' human nature was irradiated with his eternal glory, the glory of God. There they saw his face shine like the sun in its strength. There they saw his body transformed in its resurrected, glorified state. There the glory descended, and they had entered that glory cloud, these three, and they passed with him into the presence of the Father, and they heard him speak about the Exodus, the Passover, that he's about to accomplish by his death with Moses and Elijah, no less, who were there with him in the glory of God. Despite that experience, not one of these bold three ever utilized or even thought of utilizing the memory of that transfiguration to their own comfort or hope. It seems the transfiguration was primarily for Jesus' sake to encourage him in what lay ahead. And Jesus grasped hold of that assurance on behalf of his people. The writer to the Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Three times Jesus prayed. He found his only comfort in his communion with God. If you've ever been alone, totally alone, without friends, without those you trust? Have you found that your communion with God is enough for you? Sometimes it's the only thing we have. Now, the ancient and modern church have seen Jesus' prayer here as a problem to be solved. Back in the fourth century, Arius, a a presbyter in uh, Alexandria in North Africa, had a view of the transcendent otherness of God that made God the Creator so high, high, high above Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of Man, that he suggested that Jesus was subordinate to God, that he was perhaps not fully divine, though he was divine, he was not fully divine. And Arius was tempted to conclude, therefore, that there was a time when the Son was not. That, in other words, that he came into, into existence at some point, perhaps in eternity past, as we ridiculously call it. In the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul outlines the gospel in essence for us. He says that he, as an apostle, was set apart for the gospel of God. Well, what is the gospel of God? Well, it concerns his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who is shown to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that sets the parameters of how we should think of Jesus. As a human being in the line of David, deriving his human nature from his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and at the same time as Son of God, demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. Cyril of Alexandria, uh, who came long after Arius, was there. 
and has, is known really to the church for his sermons more than his theological writing, in his sermons shows us that the glory of Jesus' humanity was in full-on show in his sufferings on the cross when he's teaching from John's gospel. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about the, the seed that falls into the ground and dies and has to die before it can produce fruit. We are the fruit. He has to die before we can come to life and live in him. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In other words, Jesus eternally, as we find in chapter 17 of John's gospel, eternally shares the glory of God infinitely and eternally with the Father without any diminishing or any change. But we learn that he's also glorified as a man in his human nature, glorified through suffering as a man. Here's how Cyril puts it. If he conquered as God, to us that's nothing. There's nothing for God to to do what God wants to do. But if he conquered as man, then we conquered in him. For he is to us the second Adam, come from heaven according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the man of heaven, the second Adam, the last man, who's come into the world to do what? To do what Adam failed to do. What did Adam do? He disobeyed, and he brought us all into this mess of sin with him by his disobedience. What does Jesus as a second man do? He obeys. He obeys in order that his obedience might be imputed to you and to me in order that we might stand before God clothed in his righteousness alone. And he then offers himself in his body as a sacrifice for your sin, to die in your place, to take the death we deserve. Now we understand the words that Jesus uses here. Not my will, but thine be done. The Arians claimed that Christ had a different will than God. That means that the Son, therefore, is not of the same substance as God, the Father. And he uses this verse to support it. Modern evangelicals try to outdo Arius. They didn't become Arian because they affirm, they affirm, they affirm, they affirm the Holy Trinity regularly. Uh, but when you do mathematics, when we did mathematics, as, it's, it's when we were at school, we, the teacher would come along and look at our answers. Now, we had a book, math book. And at the back of that math book, there were the answers to all the questions or the tests. Invariably, I got all the right answers. I thought that's why they were there at the back of the book. And the teacher would come along and he would, uh, he had a leather belt that he hid in here, which would come crashing down on your knuckles. Uh, that would happen from time to time. And he would say to me, do you think that's the right answer? I said, yes, of course. But your workings 
don't give that answer, do they? And of course, he was right. Teachers are always right. And uh, so this group of evangelicals, they affirmed the Nicene Creed. They affirmed the Holy Trinity, but their workings didn't get them there. What happened was that they posited a scenario whereby the Son and the Father have different roles within the Godhead. The Father is the authority figure. The Son is subordinate to the Father. And they were using this, by the way, to argue that these eternal relationships of order between the Father and the Son are mirrored in the the teaching that they were enunciating of authority and submission between men and women. Men have authority. Women are to submit to all men. And in marriage, the husband has authority and the wife submits to that authority. And they were using their view of the Godhead as a template for those human relationships. Now, the whole number of contradictions involved there I won't go into. Uh, The relations between husbands and wives and men and women and in the church and in the world are obviously nowhere like the Father and the Son. And especially in the church, men and women are sons of God, kings to God, priests to God, inheritors of the inheritance, and disciples, and are all one in Christ Jesus. But put that aside. That's not the issue. This movement to speak of God as having authority and submission has had so many issues that needed to be addressed, and I'm just going to point on some. I had a conversation back in 2016 with someone, and I asked that person three questions. Do you believe there are three wills in God, in the Godhead? He said, yes. Do you believe there are three centers of consciousness That's a kind of modern concept that would have been unknown to the biblical authors, but not to the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author. Do you believe there are three centers of consciousness? He said, yes. Would you agree there are three quiddities in the Godhead? You all know what the word quiddity means, so I don't have to explain it to you. Uh, you You could say three essences or three things. That's probably the most simple way of thinking about it. And he said, yes. And I said to him, surely that's tritheism. And of course, that's what tritheism would be. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. When it says one, it means one. One will... One center of consciousness, one quiddity, one thing. God is one thing. And the will of God is this, 1 Timothy 2. God wills all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Enter Maximus, the confessor. Maximus, who comes a lot later than the other guys I've mentioned so far, except my friend that I talked to in 2016, of course, taught us to pay attention to what Christ says here. Not what I will, but let your will prevail. These words don't suggest 
shrinking back or resistance or fear. They denote, Maximus says, perfect agreement and consent. As Son of God, He wills the one will of God. In His sinless human nature, that is a nature, by the way, His nature, unique, because He is sinless and unable to sin, His nature is endowed with free will. Our will is in bondage to our fallen human nature. Our will is skewed away from God. His was a perfect human will, therefore free will. He, in his freedom, perfect freedom, commits himself to doing the will of God freely. As the servant of the Lord, he submits himself to the divine will by conforming his human will wholly to God's will. So Maximus said, Maximus said as the God-man, he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He has a divine will, a human will. And he explains that while Christ's divinity is evident at the transfiguration, his humanity is what's on show here in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are seeing the man, Christ Jesus. We are seeing the pressure of what lies ahead on the human Lord. We are seeing the anguish of the human Christ as he anticipates what lies before him. When Christ came into the world, his Father prepared for him a body. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is what Jesus is doing at Gethsemane. He's acting as our high priest. He's coming to the Father as our high priest. We, we see that in the longer prayer that's recorded that Jesus prayed that night in John chapter 17 where he is acting as our high priest. For their sakes, I consecrate myself. As the priest consecrates the sacrificial victim that is to be offered for the sake of the people, so our great high priest consecrates himself to be the sacrifice that will save the people of the world. And he does all of this to reconcile us to God. Cardinal Newman, in, his, in his, one of his hymns, puts it like this, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. Christ has come as the second Adam to the fight. And here we see the man, Christ Jesus, committing himself to the death for us and our salvation. The will of Christ to do the will of God was never in doubt. 
We have to put full weight to both parts of that petition. Not my will. Your will be done. As Maximum, Maximus put it, his human will is wholly godlike in that it is in harmony with the divine will. For it is always moved and formed by it. His human will is in perfect conformity with the will of his Father when, as a man, he says, let not my will, but thine be done. The incarnation came about in the mercy of God because of the will of Mary. I think we have to distinguish here in the way God deals with us in salvation, where it is, where it is all of God, monergistic. God is taking all the action. We have no part to play in our salvation. But in our Christian life in sanctification, we cooperate with God. Our will has been made alive by the Holy Spirit, able to cooperate with God. And so... Uh, our, our walk of holiness, we have things to do. They don't, they don't, they're not worthy of acquiring holiness, but God is pleased to work with us. We, Paul the Apostle uses that language all the time, of us working together with God. And that's what Mary's doing when she says, I will let it be according to your word. And here is Jesus, the man in his human nature, now accepting the cup of suffering freely. And in doing so, shows us that the human will becomes more human when it is in harmony with God's will. It's because he found sin abhorrent. It's because he was in trauma as he considered what lay ahead that we can affirm his true humanity. It's because he found sin to be sin that he persisted to be faithful unto death, even death on the cross, for our sakes. He sees with absolute clarity the whole vile flood of evil, all the power of the lies and the pride and the wiles and the and the crush, cruelty of the devil that seeks to destroy and debase and crush human lives. As the Son of Man, he takes to himself that vast power of sin and death into himself so that it can be unmasked, disarmed, and defeated in him on our behalf. It's because he is the Son that he has the divine clarity to see the depths, length, and height of evil. And so, with his human will, he chooses that path, and that path precipitates the clash of light and darkness, life and death. Jesus is making, at this point, the most serious and critical decision in all human history— and he does it as a human being on our behalf. And we find ourselves strangely drawn in to this episode. For we see in that cup, if we take a glance, we see our own sins in that cup. Our own sins in that cup. 
We, we see the, the sins of the world in that cup. Pascal heard the Lord say to him in the agony, those drops of blood I shed for you. And in the drama of the agony on the Mount of Olives, Jesus draws our will, our oppositional, rebellious wills into synergy with God's will. He teaches us what it is to be a Christian at this point. For a Christian to have to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of God, we must bring our wills into synergy with God's will. And he does it all with the assurance of his relationship to his Abba, to his Father. I remember back in 1966, Joachim Jeremias wrote a book on the use of the word Abba. He said not a single, he found not a single instance of God being addressed as Abba in the literature of Jewish prayer. Abba is the language of a child, of children, to their parent. Abba. And here Jesus is acting as our great high priest. The passion is one long wrestling prayer by our great high priest for us, as he takes the job on here in Gethsemane, as he offers himself up to the Father on the cross. And his prayer was heard. This prayer was heard in heaven. This prayer was heard by God and was granted. And it was granted in this way. It was granted in his resurrection and ours. In his resurrection and ours. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you this morning. We are in awe and wonder considering what our Lord Christ did for us. It's kind of more real that he did it in his human nature. Therefore, we can identify more with it than perhaps we can identify with the Mount of Transfiguration. We pray, Lord, that our souls might not be sleeping this morning, that we might be alert, and that we might see that our Savior Jesus went through this for our sakes in order to accomplish so great a salvation. And if there's anyone here this morning does not know our Jesus, will you, Lord, commend him in their conscience to them today? And in doing so, draw them into your family and into your love eternally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.